It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. All right. <clears throat> well, uh, we're going through a series called Life Lessons. Very creative title, I know. And uh, it's been sort of fun for me because I- I've been... You know, at the night, you know, I'll come in and add to my computer another life lesson that I have. Because sometimes if someone just asked you off the cuff, what, what are the life lessons that you would have? You might be able to think of a couple, but to be able to think of 10 to 20, you know, that's like difficult. That takes some time. And so I've just been pondering all these different nuggets that are just sort of stowed away that if I were to say, if someone were to really ask me a question, it's like, Eric, I want you to write a book on what are the 10 to 20 most significant truths that have impacted your life. These are the sorts of things that would come out. And they're meaty. So for me to be delivering them here, they're, it's like a, a bone with a lot of good meat on it. If I was a dog, that would be very exciting, right? And, you know, and I would be chewing on it. This is like the type of thing that is really meaty for my soul. This one's called the Puddle Principle, which is very meaningful to me. And for some of you, you may have heard of this if you've gone through Ellerslie. I've mentioned the Puddle Principle. I don't know at what level, and I don't know if I've done it in every semester. But I definitely know I've brought it up in the past. And it is deeply significant in the formation of my soul. Almost everything that I'm talking about, there seem each of these truths seem to have gradients to them. Like if you were to put gradient 1 all the way to 100... Many of us, we start out in our Christianity and we understand something at a, a very basic, simple level, but then as we progress, we, we understand it at level two, and it makes our understanding at level one almost feel like we didn't know it at all. It's like, oh, did I even know this? It's like, well, you actually did, you just knew it at gradient one. But then when you get to gradient 53, suddenly your understanding at gradient two is just sort of pathetic, and you even make fun of yourself. It's like, well, what was I doing back then? How could I even live understanding it only at level two? And yet you still knew it at level two, and you still appropriated it at level two. And we oftentimes have a tendency to kick what I call our heritage and where we've come from. We, we look back at our younger years of immaturity, and we actually sort of get upset with ourselves. And instead of recognizing that the way that God grows us up is similar to the way that a child would grow up in my family, for instance. I don't look back at their three-year-old years and, you know, want to kick it and go, this is so ridiculous. Look at, you know, how young they were back then. Actually, it's precious to me. And I, I say that we should have a new lens, even though we're growing up in these truths. And I don't know how many gradients, you know, it's almost scary when you hear what this truth is, how many gradients I really want to learn uh, about it. But at the same time, it's very significant, and it's fascinating just to sort of see how we develop as Christians to recognize that there's always more, which is, of course, the very first life lesson, which was called the endless frontier. In other words, there's just no end to the growth that we have in Christ. It's, it's just forever and always, and it's just so exciting, so robust. The puddle principle. So in a, Hebrews 11, when we're going through what some people call the hall of faith, you know, and it goes through and it says, by faith they did this, by faith they did this. It's, it's, a, it's a great and epic uh, chapter in the Bible. But there's one line that I want to just sort of draw out, and that is, who through faith were made strong out of weakness. So, 
And as an action of their faith, they seemed to understand that their weakness was the stage upon which strength would be demonstrated. This idea is actually very constant and replete in Scripture, but it's an odd one that is very difficult for us to oftentimes grasp, which is why this is a key life lesson for me. And that is that out of weakness, they were made strong. Well, that doesn't make any sense to us because out of weakness, what do you have? You have weakness. You don't have strength. Weakness doesn't equate to strength. We all know that. Weakness equates to weakness. And yet out of weakness, they were made strong. Why? Because faith was added to it. You see, when you mix in faith into weakness, you end up with a dynamic in the Christian life that changes the world. And that's very, very important. We see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And when it says, and he said to me, that's Paul speaking, and speaking of God. And this is in that one scene of talking about the thorn in the flesh where Paul has seen visions in the, uh, in the upper echelons of heaven. And he is saying that a thorn was given him lest he be exalted above measure. And it's a very unique passage in Scripture that a lot of debate has happened over. But this part uh, is very telling and unique in the understanding of what we're talking about today. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul is experiencing weakness with this thorn that he has. What the thorn is, we don't know, but he's experiencing weakness because of it. And God gives him a truth, and that is that his strength, or God's strength, is made perfect in and through weakness. The question is, and I just sort of want to start us out with this notion, do you believe that? That God's stage, his chosen stage revealing his strength is actually weakness. That he wants us to delight in weakness because he has chosen it as his delivery vehicle of his strength. He can't work through your strength. He needs to work through your weakness. Like, God, why why do you have to do that? I don't want to be weak. See, that, there's something about that that is very, very significant for us. We want to be strong. And then through our strength, we can demonstrate God's strength. Instead, God says, are you willing to become weak? Think about the cross. Jesus was willing to become weak, and in and through that weakness, God's strength was made perfect. God's strength was demonstrated. And so the same process is what we learn to adopt in our life. Listen to the second half of this scripture. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, okay, if this is true, then I'm going to actually get excited about my weakness because it's in my weakness that the power of God comes onto this stage and demonstrates. Huh. So if this is true, remember Peter, when Peter's like, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. Remember Uh, Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, and it's like, there's no way I'm going to have the Messiah wash my feet. He's not going to take a humble servant position in my life. And then Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, Peter, uh, you can't be clean. Uh, And then Peter says, oh, well, then wash all of me, right? This is sort of the same response here. Paul's having a struggle. He's rejecting the weakness. He doesn't want the weakness. And then God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in this weakness. And then Paul says, if that's true, then I'm going to get excited about my weakness. Because when I'm weak, then God's strength will rest upon me. 
God's strength will stretch, it will stand out onto the stage of my life and proclaim to all the world who he is. It's like, so what you're saying, God, is I just need to be willing to be weak for that to happen? Exactly. But the tension that we have <clears throat> is we don't want to become weak. We want to be strong. I want to look, as a native desire in me, I want you to be impressed with me. Okay, that's, that's a native, natural instinct that I have, is I want you to like me. I want you to be impressed with me. So if there was something that God was asking me to do, <clears throat> which would cause me to look weak in your eyes, sorry, <clears throat> I would instinctively pull back from it because I want to look good in your eyes. I want to look strong in your eyes. I want to look competent in your eyes. I want to look smart in your eyes. And yet God will deliberately lead us down paths the same way he did his son, where we could be stripped, naked, scourged, look like a criminal to the world, ask us to not open our mouth, and to die in front of a mocking crowd. Okay, now there isn't anything pleasant in that, and for our natural man, it is repulsive. And God says, if you will allow me to lead you, if you will allow me to take your life and do with it what I see fit to do, I will demonstrate my glory to the nations. I will show forth my strength. You see, that's why, remember at the very beginning I said, I don't know if I want to have greater understanding of this truth than what I've already had. Because believe me, I've had a crash course in this understanding. And I've gone through some extremely difficult and painful things that caused me to reflect upon the cross and say, Lord, you bore so much more infamy than I've ever borne. Wow, you became a worm and no man. It causes me to reflect upon that and go, whoa. And yet, what have I seen when God has ever walked me through a narrow channel and I've submitted to it say, God, I'm willing to go in this direction. But wow, God, could you please defend my reputation? I mean, you have to stand for me because you're asking me to keep my mouth shut. Whenever I've gone through that, you know what happens inside of me? There's a richness that begins to form. It's a greater oomph in my own spiritual man when I'm willing to walk that narrow way. The balding tires. So as the story goes, I remember I was in a previous house, uh, which is, uh, you know, our old yellow house over here down the road, and uh, I remember the garage door was open. I remember the scene very, very well, uh, and I had my old mower. I have a riding lawnmower now because I went from a little lot, postage stamp lot, to two and a half acres. So I lost my great Toro mower. I had a great mower there guys, I want you to just take note of this. I would take that mower in to get fixed, you know, to get the blade sharpened, and the people go, where'd you get this thing? They don't make these things anymore. This is a great mower. I'd be like, oh, thank you. I didn't know I had a great mower, but I had a great mower. So this was that great mower, okay? And so I remember leaning over, and I was going to pull the, what do you call that thing? Choke, or pull the thing? I'm not a big mower uh, expert. But I was going to pull that thing, okay, that goes, and gets it started. Boy, I wish I had the word for that, because remember, I want to look intelligence in your eyes. <clears throat> and when I leaned down to pull it, there was my Montero sitting right there, and I saw the tires on it. And they were balding. And I knew they were balding, but there was something about that moment that stood out to me. Because I had, to get tires replaced, I don't know if you've ever replaced tires, but it's expensive. And on a Montero, a big SUV, it's extra expensive. And I didn't have any money. And our minivan in the front of the house, on the other side of the house, 
had bald-end tires. And there's just something, when you're low on money, buying rubber is not romantic, okay? It's very, very difficult to spend on something like balding tires. However, I'm feeling, <clears throat> even in that moment, I'm feeling a fresh wave of responsibility as a man to care for my family because Hudson was just a little baby. And so I have this little baby and I have a wife and at any point in time, these tires could just go, you know, and they, Leslie could be driving. It could be a terrible thing. So I'm feeling that as I lean over to pull uh, and start the mower. I don't know what the mower has to do with this story other than I just remember it, okay? This is how it all uh, occurred. And if I shouldn't have even brought in the mower because I could have sounded more intelligent because I wouldn't have exposed if I didn't know what that thing is called. Uh, however, when I leaned over and I saw the bald-in tires, I had a discussion with God. I was like, God, I wish I could buy those tires. Uh, and in a sense, if I could put it into a conversation, it's like, well, uh, why don't you? Well, God, I, I don't have the money for it. So let me ask you a question, Eric. Are you saying you don't have the money in the bank to pay for those new tires? Well, not really. What do you mean by not really, Eric? Well, I technically have money in the bank, but it's already allocated. It's already going to be used for my mortgage the next week. So I don't really have the money. So you're saying you have the money. Well, yeah, I, I, okay, I have the money, but I don't have the If I spend it, then I wouldn't have the money for this. But you have the money. Okay, all right. I, I, I see where you're going with this, God. I mean, I have the money, but I don't feel like I have the money. But you have the money. And you know this is important. Yeah? And so this is what I'm going to call the puddle principle right here. And this is a very, very intense thing in my life as a man, okay? You have to recognize this is really hard for me. So even what I'm bringing up, it's a life principle for me, but not necessarily the easiest one. And I've, I've struggled with it, I have to admit. This has probably been one of the life lessons that I give you that I've struggled with almost more than any. And that is that when there is an obvious need in front of you and you have the resource for it, to spend on it with faith, and to say, God, I'm willing to become weak to do what I know I need to do. And would I be willing to spend money on rubber tires? I mean, if it's all the money I have left because I know it's the right thing to do. I need to take care of my family. And I know I have the money in the bank. And I'm going to spend on tires. And so I did. I bought the tires. And here's what's weird is when I bought the tires and I emptied my bank account basically to buy tires, my bank account, bloop, filled up again, and I had money for my mortgage. And I remember noticing that. And I was like, that is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. And have you ever had the feeling at times that, you know, you get a surprise check in, you get a bonus amount of money, and then something happens in your life which takes that money and you have to spend it? You ever had that where it's like, oh, I finally got some extra money. I got 20 more dollars than I've ever had. And then suddenly, you know, something happens. I don't know what it is. You could fill in the blank. And it, what does it cost? $20. It costs the exact amount that you just got in bonus. Now, what we fail to oftentimes see in that, because most of us just want to build a barn and stick a whole bunch of cash in it, right? We don't always have that luxury. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Because that dependence is part of what God uses to reveal his strength. And so instead of seeing the fact that God supplied that extra to care for you, 
and he supplied precisely what you needed, we have a tendency to grumble because we, we just had to spend our extra, right? And that mixes in with the puddle principle. It's, it's an attitude of faith It says God knows what I need. Now, we're talking about God here. God has endless supply. I don't know if you've ever pondered that as far as what resource does he have access to? Like, how deep are his pockets? What is he able to afford? Wow. I mean, he owns and possesses the entire universe. Well, that's a lot. Uh, You know that he has everything that we need multiplied by trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions. In other words, there's no shortfall in God's economy to make up whatever lack we have. The problem is, it's like an aquifer. So there's a difference between our lake out here and an aquifer. A lake is seen, it's visible. An aquifer is unseen. But it's oftentimes, well, and you look at the aquifer that's under the Midwest uh, states, it is so massive. It's like an underground ocean, right? And here we have this diddly squat lake. And so what oftentimes we get as Christians is we get a promise. It's like, Eric, my aquifer is available to you anytime you need it. And then what do we see in the natural? We have a little puddle. So the guy next door has this huge lake. It's like an Ellerslie Lake that he has. And he's like boasting about it, you know, driving around his uh, Tesla. Boy, I love Teslas. And I, there's part of me like, oh, wouldn't that be fun to have a Tesla? So, I mean, my neighbor, you know, has his lake and everything's visible, right? I have my little puddle. And it looks so minuscule. It's like, God, couldn't you give me more? Well, I've given you more. Well, yeah, but like in the natural sense, I don't want... Do you believe that there's an aquifer supporting that little puddle? And that when you pull out of that puddle what you need? Bloop! I'll fill in that puddle again? Yeah, I do believe it, but could we make it Lake Michigan instead of a puddle? You see, I'd feel so much more comfortable if it was a big lake that I could just sort of look out my window and stare at and go, ah, I have everything I need. Instead, I have a puddle, which is everything I need for today. I don't like that, God. I mean, no, no offense, God, to your ways, which are higher than mine. But that is awkward and uncomfortable and difficult. And why couldn't we just do it a different way? Because my strength is made perfect in and through your weakness. You see, I've perfectly set this thing up to demonstrate the power of my provision. And so I've chosen you, Eric. I want to do it through you. And so that's the puddle principle. There's a puddle, and there's balding tires, and you know that you should take care of those balding tires. So what do you do? You take from your puddle, and it seems to empty your puddle, by the way, and you take care of the balding tires, and what happens? God's aquifer kicks in, bloop, and fills up the puddle. Well, that's incredible. I mean, just think about the ramifications of that. If you really believe that God is endless in his supply and that he has the control over the aquifer, and if he asks you to take from your puddle... And he says, I will supply for you, Eric. Just obey. Just do what you're supposed to do. Well, God, I would become weak by taking from my puddle. I know. You see, I've chosen this as my pattern. Out of weakness, my strength will be made perfect. The puddle principle. Giving up the little in order to prove the more. There are going to be situations in your life as a Christian where God is going to bring you to a point where you have little and he's going to ask for it. 
I mean, one of my favorite stories was a Hudson Taylor one where he had uh, a certain, and it's English money, and so it always sounds funny to me. I don't know, and it's all different in inflation, and every, but it was, let me give the illustration, it's like a $100 bill in our pocket, okay? So it'd be the type of thing you, that if you see someone begging on the streets, you would hesitate to give them the 100 if it's the only bill you have. You'd probably say, yeah, I don't have any money, sorry. Because you have 100, and now if you had a few ones in there, a five even, I mean, maybe a 10, you'd be okay with parting, but you don't have change. You can't make change with a guy standing on the side of the street, hey, could you give me change? And so as a result, you have a tendency to plea, you have nothing. When in actuality, God could say, well, I, I could have sworn that I gave you a $100 bill. Well, yeah, you, you did, God, but I mean, obviously, you know, you and I know that that's too much for this guy. And so Hudson Taylor was in such a circumstance where this guy was coming to him and saying, hey, do you have, and it was a very small amount of money that he was asking for, this, this beggar. And Hudson Taylor was like, oh, I'm so sorry <laughs> that I just don't have it. In his mind, he's thinking, okay, I have money, but there's no way that God would I mean, expect me to take my entire week's paycheck and give it to this guy. And this is one of the most, uh, even reading the story, I was stressed out. I mean, because I could feel it. I really could. It's like, oh, God, well, this is uncomfortable. I mean, if you just, and this is actually what he was saying. If I just had, here's how we would say it. If I just had a few $1 bills, then yes, I would give it God. And then as the conversation goes, he says to God, God, if I just had it broken into fives, I would give it. God, if it was just broken into tens, I would give it. But even if it was broken into 20s, God, I, I would give a 20. Even if it was 250s, I would give a 50. And then he sort of ran out of options. Okay. Uh, by the way, sir, the, sir, the man was leaving. I, I actually do have something for you. <laughs> and he gave away, I don't know if it was like his whole week's paycheck, because he knew that what God was asking of him. This was a very specific, narrow stretch where God was saying, will you become weak? And I don't remember the story, but it's good, okay, if I could just summarize it that way that God then supplies in a superabundant way once he relinquished. Think about the little boy with his lunch. Okay, the little boy with his lunch, that's all he has too. I mean, we fail to ever think about the fact that the little boy is a character in the story. We just sort of think it's an honor that his lunch would be taken. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to take my lunch to feed them. Okay, wh wh what about me? You could easily think that, but the little boy gave his lunch willingly, and what did he get? Well, obviously, he was a character in the grand drama of Scripture, which is a pretty cool thing, but he also was fed. And I have a hunch, don't you, that he was fed more than what he had in that lunch. And so as a result, to recognize that sometimes God is going to come to us and say, do you have something to give? Ah. And it's hard for us, and I don't know if it's just a man thing. My guess is it's, it's a universal thing, but again, I've only been a man. And I know that for us as men, this is a very, very sensitive point because we want to have and keep and hold because we have an instinct of provision. We want to take care of other people around us. It's actually a very reasonable and good quality, and it makes it very difficult that if I'm going to give to that guy on the street everything I have, now I'm robbing from my wife and my kids. And so there's this tension that is created in there, and uh, it's a good thing to walk through is all I'm saying. So now I'm going to liken this principle to the gospel and what the gospel requests of it. I'm going to call it the gospel exchange. Giving up the little in order to gain the more. So this is actually the principle of the gospel. You hold on to your life, you lose it. If you give up your life, you will find life. 
You see, the benefits of the gospel come when we relinquish, when we give up the little we have. Now, you could say, what are you calling me, little? Yeah. Compared to God? Yeah. You see, God is wanting to give you himself, and he's asking for something. He's asking for you to give up you. And you are rather diddly squat next to God. And yet God says, would you let go of you, and I will give you all of me. You see, the exchange is extraordinary. I mean, we always think we're getting the bad end of the deal. It's like, why does God ask so much? And instead, you could look at it like, why does God give so much to us? If you're looking at it in an equity sense, God's getting the raw, raw end of the deal. If you look at just on paper, God who owns everything is giving everything to you. And what are you giving to him? Uh, not much, okay? You're giving him you, which... Last time we checked, legally was headed to hell, okay? In other words, it's good for some burning, kindling material for the fires of hell. And God says, I want that. God, you want that? Yeah, I've chosen that. That's precious to me. And so if we, the that in the story, would be willing to give up our life to God, who is not just deserving and worthy, but he's purchased us for every reason we should give up our life. It's only reasonable that we would give it. The term in Romans 12 is logikos. It's logical. It's the root of logical. It's logical that we would give up our lives as a living sacrifice unto God. But it's not logical in my mind that he would give up his entire inheritance, the entirety of the heavenlies, to us in exchange. You want something greater in your life. You have to give up the little that you have. In Matthew 13, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man is found, he hides, and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so what you see is this principle of when you see the value of what God wants to give, you give up the little you have. It's an exchange. It's a gospel exchange. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. So when you see the treasure that is hid in the field, when you see the aquifer, See, it's hid. It's a hidden aquifer, but you see it with the eyes of faith. When you see that, what are you willing to do? You're willing to give up all the riches of this earth and trust God's aquifer. You have a little Ellerslie Lake. And God says, would you be willing to give up your Ellerslie Lake and get access to my aquifer? Woo, woo, God. I'm, you want me to give up my whole Ellerslie Lake? Yes, uh, because I'd like to give you something greater. But what he gives you is hid. It's like hidden a field. <laughs> You can't see it, but you esteem it by faith. And so as a result, you go and sell your Ellerslie Lake so that you can gain the aquifer of God. This is the exchange. This is how it works. The widow of Zarephath. So I covered this actually, a, I don't know, it was a few weeks ago. And uh, I was talking about Elijah and his grand adventures. Uh, it's a very fun message. But the widow of Zarephath, when the brook dries up, this is in a time of drought in Israel. The brook dries up, and Elijah's been being fed by ravens supernaturally, and he's had this brook. But the brook dries up, and God says, I've commanded a woman, a widow woman in Zarephath to supply for you, to provide for you, which is one of the most bizarre statements in Scripture because it's a widow. And a widow woman in the midst of a drought, she has nothing. And so Elijah comes to her, and she is just, I mean, she's preparing to die. She has a little boy with her, and she has no provision, so she has one little handful of flour and a little bit of oil in her jar, and I'm guessing like one little cup of water, 
Okay, it's a drought. Water is the most expensive commodity. The first thing Elijah says is, uh, could you give me a cup of water? Could you imagine? It's like, all I have is a cup of water. Yeah, I'd like that. And oh, by the way, could you make me uh, a cake? Make me a cake. <clears throat> and she goes, well, uh, all I have is this little handful of flour and little oil in a jar, and I was going to prepare a little meal for me and my son, and then we were going to die. And Elijah says, yeah, make that for me instead. And if you do, listen, if you do, your flour will never run out and your oil will never run dry as long as there's a drought in Israel. Do you trust me, basically? Now, we just oftentimes read these stories and we don't stick ourselves in the widow's position, but this is an awkward moment, okay? What are you going to do in that situation? Now, all you have is a little flour and a little oil, but the mighty prophet of old, symbolic of Jesus Christ in this story, comes to you and says, I see you only have little. Would you be willing to give up your little? And if you do, I will supernaturally supply for you, and you will never run out. And yet... Her flower is going to be like an aquifer. Every day she'll take the last bit and more will be there. Every day she'll take the last bit of oil and there will be more there. That's not the way we want to live. God, just fill the pantry with flour. Bags and bags of it. You know, so I can anticipate. I can schedule out my use. I can determine how and budget these things. And say, here's how it works in the kingdom of heaven. You have your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. How many of us have prayed that? It's like, it's really not what we want to pray. God, give us uh, this year our yearly bread. <laughs> yeah, we have our American version of that. Our daily bread? I don't want to have to have daily bread, daily flour, daily oil. I want supply. I want a barn full of this stuff. You, you see the tension, okay? We're all in this together. We could all unite together and, you know, pick at God's kingdom and say, we want different terms. We could. Or we could submit to God's terms and say, okay, God, you know what's best. There is a way that seems right unto a man. It leads to death. To have plenty actually doesn't serve your soul. It's a weird thing. And what's awkward is there are times when God will give us plenty. There are seasons. And there are seasons when we will have little. And Paul in Philippians says he's learned the secret of contentment, whether having a lot or little. And so we need to learn how to navigate both, but we're actually at risk when we have plenty. We are. We're higher risk rating in our spiritual development and growth. We oftentimes level out and we stop our incline of growth. When you are dependent and you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, it's amazing how it spikes your prayer life. And so as a result, to not complain about the difficulties of the weakness, but to cherish it. The last barrels of water. So now I'm speculating here that after three and a half years of drought in Israel, they were down to their last. Because you have Ahab in the, in the few verses before out searching for green grass anywhere so that they could uh, have their cattle not die, right? This is like extremity in Israel. And this is when Elijah calls all the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Ashtoreth uh, and he calls uh, you know, King Ahab and all of Israel to up to Mount Carmel. And what's the rare commodity in Israel? Water. And so he, has, he says, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. That was the big uh, test and everyone agreed, okay, this is what we're going to do. And so the Baal prophets are trying to call down fire uh, from Baal 
and nothing happens. They're making fools of themselves. And finally, Elijah's turn comes up. He's all by himself as a prophet in Israel, and he has to rebuild the altar. And then he does the one thing that most of us would never expect. He says, I need that water. I can just imagine him. This is the one thing that's not written. That's why I speculate. Okay, if I was making a movie, I'd have to stick this in as a sub-theme, and people would go, where would he get that? It's somewhat of a speculation. That is, I can imagine him saying to Ahab, I want all the water that is left in Israel brought here. Because this is the rare moment. Just remember what happened right before this, the widow at Zarephath. He says, I want everything you have left, and then, what you, then when you give up what little you have, you will find my supply. Well, God right before this says he's going to supply rain again for Israel. But for him to supply rain, what does he have to do? He has to test them. I want your water. So what does Elijah do? He says, take four barrels and dump it on the altar. Okay, so I imagine that there are 16 barrels. Okay, that's just my imagination. Take four, dump them on the altar. And then they're like, this is the last water we have. I know. We're going to feed God first. This is his meal. You know that it actually says that God lapped up? He uses a, a, an eating term for what he does with this altar. So we're going to give the water to God first. Okay, it's our last water in Israel. Then he says, dump four more barrels. Four, four more barrels? You know how precious this is? Yes, I do. Dump it on the altar. You want rain? Let's feed God first. Four more. Twelve barrels of water. In a time of drought after three and a half years, they're taking the most precious commodity and dumping it on God. And then, just because in my mind there's four more barrels sitting there, and he's like, hmm. All right, fill in the trench around with all the remaining water. What happens? God laps it up with fire. Bad idea, by the way, to call down fire in the middle of a drought, but that's, that's what they did. Then what? Well, if you follow the story, you're going to find that they had such an abundance of rain that maybe Israel had never before known or seen. You see, you want the abundance of the fullness of the life of God, you oftentimes have to relinquish the little that you have. We're going to call it giving in scarcity. If there's one time that we have a tendency to be hoarders, it's when things are scarce. When you only have a handful of flour, you have a tendency to want to hold on to that handful of flour. When you only have a little bit of oil in your jar, you have a tendency to want to hold on to that. When you have only a little bit of water left in Israel, you want to have a tendency to hold on to that. What does the prophet say? I need that. Would you relinquish that? Would you let it go? If all you have is that $100 bill to your name and it's in your pocket and God comes to you and says, hey, could I have a little money from you? Well, you could, but I need to get changed first. Well, I need it now. Would you be willing to give up everything you have? to the one known as Jesus Christ. Given in scarcity, when resources are scarcest, it's a funny word, I actually looked up scarcest to make, I was, make sure I was scare, uh, scaring it. I was uh, spelling it correct, because it's just like scarcest. It just looked funny. I, it just doesn't look like a normal word, but I like it. When resources are scarcest, pour out that which you do have. It's a principle of the kingdom, okay? Money's low, well then we should give. Who does that? So first things first, if you need bread, give up the little meal you have. If you need rain, give up the little water you have. If you need energy, give up the little energy you have. If you need strength, give up the little strength you have. If you need time, give up the little time you have. If you need God, give up being God in your own life. And if you need life, give up your life. This is the kingdom of heaven right there. I can't tell you how many times God has walked me back to that screen right there. 
You see, it's one thing when I'm in front of you guys talking and I can sound really spiritual by bringing up such things. This is hard to walk out. And I've been tested on this many, many times where God will bring up the puddle principle. Sort of like, didn't I overhear you, Eric, talking about the puddle principle today? Yeah, it was just sort of in the curriculum, God. Uh, but um, that's, that's it. That's it. There's no real profundity that we need to weave into this. It's like, well, I just think it maybe be a good time to consider how that could affect your current situation. Yeah, I was sort of afraid when I was preaching that today that you may bring this up. You see, it is a very real tension that doesn't go away. You know, as you progress in the Christian life, I have a hunch that that widow every day had a struggle with taking from the flower that was still there. I mean, every day. And yet, what did that do? That kept a dependence. That kept a dependence. She needs that mighty prophet in her home. And that's the same with us. You see, the mighty prophet has come and he wants to board with us. And he promises us that as long as he is present in our house, we will never lack. But oftentimes he'll say, and by the way, could you make me that bread? Could you make me a little cake there with that? But God, that's all, all, all okay, we've gone through this before. Yes, yes is the answer. Yes, when you give in scarcity, you find supply that is supernatural. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now see if, you know, there's going to be a rhythm to what I'm about to read here. You're going to notice a lot of scripture references in this one from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Okay, when, when scripture repeats something even once, it's a big deal. That's a lot of repetition on a concept. And this is a concept that though we oftentimes almost purposely try and overlook in Scripture, lest we actually have to activate it in our life and obey it, it's still there. It's very real. And we can't really argue it either. That God's saying, Eric, I need your life. And if you would lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow me, you will find abundant life. I have come to give you life, but to give you that life, there's one thing that stands in the way, and that is that you must give up the little life that you have. There's a lot of times when one of the things that God has taught me this with is energy and time as well. You'll notice that was in my list because finances is one dimension that it, God has worked on, there's no doubt. And the second one is it's the practical side of life that if I have energy and it's depleted, right? If we were to say, imagine the tank is 100, okay? It's like full, and I'm feeling really good. I'm ready for a good workout, and oh, this is great. I'm, and, but that isn't always the case, especially when you return home after a long day, and it's maybe been a trying day, and my energy levels are waning low. So there may be a, maybe a five to seven out of 100, so it's like I've depleted throughout the day. And then you come home, and my kids have been conspiring all day that when Daddy gets home, they're going to do, you fill in the blank, with something grand and exciting and very energy demanding, right? Like wrestling. That's been one of the classic things in my life. My kids don't do it as much. I'm sort of glad they're not here this morning unless they get the idea afresh. But I actually do enjoy wrestling. But it's really hard at the end of the day when you have a seven left in your tank. Because when you have seven left in your tank, you know what you have a tendency to do? Hoard your seven. And so the kids, you know, ask something. It's like, Daddy really needs to not do something right now. And if the kids say, well, why not? Because daddy's low in his energy. And 
as opposed to, here's, here's what God has taught me. But God, I only have a seven. I only have a seven left, and if I use it up, I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I mean, bad things could happen if you use up your last seven, right? It's like, Eric, if you would give your last seven in this situation, I'll give you supernatural energy. But are you willing to give up the little you have? This has happened so many times. I remember getting into the wrestling position, and the kids just, I mean, they just love that. They start piling on, and I usually have to create rules like, hey, guys, only one at a time. You know, I'll have to create rules because, I mean, it's hard when you're at seven, right? And you're, you're just, like, limited in your energy. But as I progress, as I give that energy that I have, I mean, it's, as I always say, give 100% of whatever you have. Because we wait, for, well, I'll give 100% when I have 100% in the tank. But what if I only have 7% in the tank? You give 100% of that 7%. If you have just a little handful of flour and a little bit of oil, what do you do? You don't skimp on the mighty prophet. You give him 100% of that flour, you give him 100% of that oil, and guess what? You will never run dry. When you heed God's principles, you will find that you will tap into a supernatural aquifer, not just financially, but practically. Energy-wise, time-wise, one of the principles of my life that I'm not mentioning in our little series is what Leslie's dad said to me right before we were married. He said, Eric, when you wake up in the morning and you have a full docket on the day and you don't know how you're going to get everything done, what you do is you spend time with Jesus. When you give to Jesus first, you will find that the rest of your day will be efficient. When you say, oh God, I don't have enough time for you, you'll find that your day will not work and you'll have far too much that you can handle, right? The secret to success in life is give out of weakness. Give to God first and you will find that God will supply supernaturally. Father, though there is a tension in this message, and though it can awaken certain anxieties, that has to do with the fact that we don't believe that you will supply, but you will, Lord. And I pray that you would bring us all to that fresh ratification of your faithfulness, of your goodness, of your truth. Lord Jesus, when we declare that you are faithful and true, Lord, I pray that we would mean it, that we truly do believe that our God has the boundless supply that we need when we obey him. Lord, that you will be present when we are weak and that your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, we love you and we just thank you so much for instructing us in your way, in your path. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and the Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.